We don't need to watch it twice. It's good. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. So we're going to dance with the one who brought us this morning, um, and we're going to talk about shame. And uh, most of us know this, but shame is this, is this universal experience. Uh, she, Brene Brown talks about it like this. It's, it's one of the oldest human emotions that any of us face. So we see this in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve are hiding from God amongst the trees of the garden. And in that way, shame is like the root of all sin. It can result from something you've done as, as their story, but it's actually much deeper than that. Um, it's this feeling, as Brene Brown talks about it, not that you've done something wrong, but that who you are is wrong. Do you see the difference? That's shame. And, and here's why that's important for us today. Uh, there's this beautiful story from Luke 17 that we just read. It, and that's a story of shame as well as the healing from shame. So a story of 10 lepers living with a profound sense that they were a mistake, that they were flawed and that they were unworthy of love and belonging and connection. And so leprosy in that way is, is like the most shameful experience you could have experienced in the ancient Near East, it, it, which is to say that when someone was deemed a leper in that time, which is a, a kind of a, a, a catch-all term for a host of, it's not Hansen's disease as we think about it today, but a host of skin diseases, they were utterly banished from society. So that person becomes an outcast. They become a pariah in their community. They're no longer allowed into cities and in towns, and thus they're stripped of their ability to economically contribute. They can't hold a job. Instead, they're forced to live in colonies, in rural villages, and isolated from society. There's actually laws in that time that forbade people with leprosy from even coming within certain distances of other human beings. That's why in verse 12 of this story, we see this group of 10 lepers standing at a distance from Jesus. They weren't allowed to get near Jesus. What's more, within the religious community of the day, lepers were pronounced ritually and ceremonially defiled, unclean, so that, which meant they were not allowed even into the temple. You couldn't, if you had leprosy or some sort of a, a visible skin disease, you couldn't come to church on Sunday. You couldn't even be here. You couldn't even stand outside here. Um, you're not allowed in the presence of God, in other words. So imagine for a moment with me the psychological, social, and spiritual strain of that experience. If you ever had a rash... That's your experience. <laughs> if you ever had some sort of visible disease, that's your experience. Try to imagine what it would feel like to be rejected, not just by your peers, your family, your community, but face rejection by God. Think about that. And though none of us have, are literally, I think, dealing with the physical trauma of leprosy, I don't think, many of us can identify with their experience of shame. Many of us are acquainted with the experience of rejection. Uh, we know their experience of worth- worthlessness, whether that's words that our, spare, our parents spoke to us or didn't speak to us in our childhood, or from slurs that were whispered about us on the playground as children because of our looks, our abilities, our ethnic heritage, our sexual identity. We might have felt this as a result of our experience of abuse or abandonment or a broken relationship. Um, we might share this because of a loss of a job or a personal failure that we can't correct. We might, uh, like them, be facing a chronic or isolating struggle with our health, like Thane talked about, anxiety or depression or infertility or whatever it might be. We know what it's like to live life along the border as these men were living. Isolated from God's people, God's grace, God's promises, God's hope. And yet, here's why I wanted to pick up on this theme this morning. There's good news. And that is that for those of us experiencing shame, which is probably all of us at some level, what we find here in Luke 17 is, the, uh, is Christ meeting us, offering to restore us from shame to love. That's what Jesus does. In Luke 17, through this encounter with Jesus and the lepers, we're offered this pathway of healing from shame, 
Um, a movement from shame to love, rejection to restoration. That's what Jesus always does in the gospel. He moves people out of shame into love. And we're going to look at that this morning. So today, what I want to invite us to do is kind of reflect on a couple questions. What would it look like for us in our lives, our gathered life, our personal lives, to move on that path from shame to love? What would healing from shame look like for us? And what would it look like to participate in the healing of others in our community? In, our, in our, our community around us, in the community here as we gather, what would those things look like, okay? And we're going to do that by way of three aspects of this story, three sort of touch points, so to speak. So the first one, the need for us to cry for help, verse 13. The second one, the reality that Jesus sees and heals us, verse 14. And then the last one, the invitation to claim our place in Jesus' kingdom, verse 17. So cry for help, recognize Jesus sees and heals, and then claim your place in Jesus' kingdom, okay? Are you with me? So first, the need to cry for help, verse 13. The first thing we see these lepers doing is crying for help. Uh, So this group of lepers has apparently heard that Jesus is coming through their town. I don't know how they heard. Gossip travels fast, so they were aware of this. And however they heard, you can imagine them hold up in their little leper colony, talking with each other, trying to decide whether they're going to venture out into public, you know, face the shame they've always faced, and try and get the attention of this rabbi who they've heard about, who has done so many amazing healings already. Which, so they do this. That's what they do. They, they muster up the courage to go out. They slink, you can imagine, through the back alleys and the margins of the village at night or at dawn. They pass through the village. They get to this place on the brow of this hill where they could spot him at a distance, get Jesus' attention. And as they see him walking through, they begin waving and crying, Hey, Jesus, Jesus. Master, have pity on us. Have mercy on us. And here's the key. In doing this, they expose themselves to the crowd who was following Jesus. See, Jesus is always being followed by crowds. And these lepers were despised by those crowds, utterly hated. They were, vil- they were vilified. These were the villains of the society. They were the, the stain on that culture. And yet they allowed themselves, their ugliness, their sense of being broken to be seen by all. They exposed themselves to um, shame. I mean, to the ridicule they probably had felt since their childhood uh, from the people who were following on Jesus' heels. I mean, what, what an act of vulnerability, right? I mean, Bernie Brown talks about courage and, and, and creativity and vulnerability being the source of those. What an act of vulnerability. What a humiliating experience for these men. And yet that's their first step toward the healing of their shame, to cry for help. I mean, when you experience shame, worthlessness, whatever you want to call this, what you actually want to do, most of us in the room, if you're like me, is hide, right? You don't want to do what the lepers did. That's the first, that's the first instinct built into our DNA, fight or flight. And most of us, what is it? Flight. Not because we're cowards, but because we're designed to protect ourselves. Like we, the last thing you want to do is come out into the open, like stand on the stage here, and say, I'm broken. Here's my stuff. I'm going to cry in front of you. I do this sometimes. And then I feel incredible shame because of it. Not because you guys are bad people, but because I'm designed. I don't want to relive, relive that movie again and again and again. I mean, you'd be stupid if you're like me to stand up in front of people and say, I'm flawed. I'm weak. What good's it going to do, right, to, to share those things with people? And so in our experience of shame, we, we, what we do is like Adam and Eve, Genesis 3, we cover and we hide. We like to stay in our dark places. We keep our shame hidden. And why we do that is to manage it, to safeguard it 
and defend ourselves, our, our identity. As Brene Brown tells this great story in one of her talks um, of this time when she's signing books. <clears throat> and there's this guy in the book signing line waiting for that line to dissipate. He's just kind of always in the back, right? And uh, until there's this moment when the line's gone and he could have this private word with her. Maybe you've heard this story. And she said, she says, I, she was really freaked out because men just didn't, at that time, go to book signings for Bernie Brown. Maybe they don't still. And so he comes up to her and he says, hey, I, I really liked everything you had to say. I love this idea of reaching out, telling our stories, showing up, but you didn't mention men. And of course, she's relieved because she, she had no idea what this guy was going to be say, to say to her. And so then she says to him, wow, uh, well, thank you, I, but I'm sorry, I just, I don't study men. And then he says to her, well, that's convenient. <laughs> and then before she could get another word in edgewise, he went on to say, you see, we have shame. Uh, we have deep shame. But we, when we reach out as men to tell our stories, we get the emotional bleep beat out of us. Um, and you fill in the bleep. And then he said, and before you say anything about those coaches and those absent fathers and those brothers who beat us up and the bullies on the playground, over there, the, those women, those, three, those four women, my wife and my three daughters, those are the ones you just signed the books for? You know the deal. They'd rather see me die on top of my horse than watch me fall off. That's my shame. And then he just walks away. And in that moment, Bernie Brown tells this, she talks about this. She says she realized how deeply rooted shame is in gender, as well as how we have all, we all this need to cover and hide. For, for women, it's really about do it all, do it perfectly, make sure you look, make it look effortless. So there's covering and hiding through image, right? For men, there's this really this singular suffocating expectation to not be perceived as weak. Like, as the commercial says, never let them see you sweat. <laughs> Uh, and so this covering and hiding for men is show tough. Show the world you're tough. Be strong. Don't be weak. And yet, these men in Luke 10 show us another path. They declare their weakness. They don't cover and hide. They say, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They show their weakness to the world. They publicly cry out. And in that, they show us the first vital step toward the healing of our shame, which is crying out on our own weakness um, and allowing ourselves to be exposed and naming our condition. And that's scary stuff if you really go there, both for men and for women, it, it, because it requires, like I said, vulnerability, courage to tell the dark places in your life, the places you if, you, if people knew about you, you they'd never want to be with you again. You're, you're afraid that you could never show your, your, yourself in church again. You'd, God would just never want to spend time with you, an ounce of energy on you. Um, there's a chance you might experience hurt again. There's, this, there's a chance nothing might happen. You just put it out there, and it's silent. Uh, and yet there's also a chance, maybe it's a small chance for you, of encounter with God as well as healing. Kurt Thompson has, Thompson has this great quote. He says, only when our shame parts are known do they stand a chance to be healed. Only when our shame parts are known do they stand a chance to be healed. What would it look like for you to, make, to let your shame parts be known and, and just stand a chance, maybe a, chance, a small chance, to be healed. What would that look like? It might mean, here's some, op, uh, some options, slowing down. Like, we are moving at the pace of, well, we like to think we're moving at the speed of light. Would it look like slowing down enough in your day to notice and recall the places in your story where you've experienced this? We all have. Like, pausing, just literally, <laughs> in your day, maybe journal, on the experience of rejection. Like, we like to journal the, the happy days, high moments, we like to fill our Instagram up with, like, your best life. 
I'm not saying put this on Instagram, but what would it look like to, to pause, think about your experience of rejection, what's happened to you, and just hold that in front of the light of Christ and ask Christ to illuminate that and be present within that rather than trying to keep it in the darkness and cover it and hide it. Like I did this a few years ago through something called a life map, which literally is just taking the story of your life, mapping it out, all your memories, positive, negatives, neutrals, and then inviting Christ by the Spirit to visit you in those over, through prayer and meditation and just bring healing. And it's such a profound experience for me that I continue to have it. I continue to go back to it because uh, Christ is, is shedding light on my shame and healing me, purging me of my sin. You don't get rid of sin once and done when you pray to receive Christ. This is a lifetime journey for you just by bringing Christ into those experiences. It might be a willingness to share your struggle with somebody else, like a trusted friend or a group of friends. This is actually one of the primary reasons we emphasize small groups in our church, not necessarily because we think Bible study is important, though it is important. We value restoration. We value wholeness. We value repair from brokenness. And we know that one of the key ways that that actually happens where shame's grip is broken on our lives is through the ministry and presence of other people who you trust. And so we, we invite you to be inside of a group of people who can hold your hurt with you and bring it into the light. For some of you it might who have experienced severe trauma, and I know many of us have because I talked to you, this might actually be seeking professional help. Um, Thane, that's not the reason we have offered Thane to you, but we have people in our community, professionals, and that scares a lot of us. Like, you know, and if that's something that scares you, like sitting down with a therapist, let me just tell you this, that would be disqualifying. Like, you could never be, you know, a leader. You could never show your face in church. Let me just tell you, a few years ago, that was my pattern of thinking. I was raised in a family that absolutely refuses to seek help and counsel in places of brokenness and trauma. So we cover and we hide. We pretend it's all good. Like, we're just the Cleaver family. And those that know me know we're not. And so a few years ago, while leading our church, I, that mindset was no longer working for me. And uh, some things from my childhood were just bubbling to the surface. I'm at this point of almost collapsing from the weight of shame. Leading our church, not working. I also became aware it wasn't going to work to just continue to throw it on my wife and my kids or you. So I sought help. I went to a therapist. Isn't that crazy? And I'm still here. And I'm still getting up every week. And it was the most restorative, most healing, uh, best thing I've done in my life. So I just want to tell you, some of you need to do that. And uh, that's a move toward Jesus. That's, a, that's, a, that's the men on the brow of the hill saying, help, master, help. And that's the first thing we're told, we're, we're told we need to do. The, the first touch point, cry for help. That will heal it. That will heal you. Here's the second thing. Believe that Jesus sees and heals. Verse 14. I think one of the most beautiful moments in this entire story is in that verse, when Luke tells us that Jesus saw them. I mean, isn't that beautiful? They're as far from Jesus as they can be, and yet Jesus, these invisible outcasts, nobody else in the world could see them. They're utterly rejected, and Jesus saw them. These men who've been shut up, shut out, Jesus saw them. There's another story in the Bible, as I reflected on this this week, one of my favorites, of an outcast who experienced shame just like that, an invisible who God saw. It's the story of Hagar in Genesis 16. Hagar's name means foreigner. And she's this teenage Egyptian slave purchased by a wealthy couple struggling with infertility who'd named, who were named Abraham and Sarah. And Hagar conceives this child for this couple. And she names him Ishmael, whose name means chastisement. 
And for some reason, Sarah doesn't like having Hagar and Ishmael in their home. I think maybe because it reminds her of her own shame. And so Sarah beats Hagar emotionally and physically and kicks her out to die an abandoned death in the desert. And there in the desert, Hagar is huddled up under a bush, preparing to die, and something miraculous happens to Hagar. The mighty, holy God of Israel visits Hagar. Now remember, Hagar's an Egyptian. She's not an Israelite. And yet God, the God of Israel, comes to her and says to her, Hagar, where have you come from and where are you going? God, God sees her. He comes to her. He asks her about her story sympathetically, compassionately. He just presses into her feeling of shame and rejection and worthlessness. And in that encounter, God proceeds to bless her, which is not only the blessing of protection and provision, but God, in fact, gives Hagar, this is really important, the same blessing that he earlier gave to Abraham. He says to Hagar, I'll increase your descendants so much, they will be too numerous to count. And that's an extraordinary thing when you think about it, because on so many levels, not the least of which, is it's, it's not a blessing that's exclusive to Abraham. God blesses Hagar, <laughs> which can only mean this, that God desires to bless us in our shame, that it's, it's in this encounter that we find a God of blessing. It's not blessing because you did the right thing or blessing because you are the right person. God blesses irrespective of pedigree and experience. God just wants to bless and bless and bless. That's the God we worship here. He wants to bless you in your life, in your shame. And so she's so moved by this God, her encounter with this God of blessing that she has the audacity to name this God she barely knows. By the way, first person in the Bible to do so. I'll get back to that. She names him Elroy, the God who sees me. And like I said, she's the first person to name God with a personal name, not Adam and Eve who walked with God in the garden, not Noah who spent years getting downloads from God about the ark, not Abraham, the father of all nations, Hagar, this Egyptian slave girl on the run for her life, enveloped by shame, names God. That's like mind-blowing when you think about that experience. And she names God Elroy, the God who sees which is why, back to Luke 17, this moment with the lepers and Jesus is so significant as he's on his way to Jerusalem to do important things and see important people. He doesn't just hear them cry for help from the brow of some distant hill. He stops, doesn't keep walking, and sees them. Jesus saw them. He pauses in the unfolding story of God and says, huh, there's something worth seeing here. There's some people worth seeing here. It's a subtle and yet significant, I think, indication in Luke 17 that Elroy, the God who sees us, is present along the way, on the border, in our shame, with the insignificant, despairing, and lost. He's the God who sees the outcasts. He's the God who sees the ones the world never sees, would never spend time on, the invisibles, the untouchables, the small, the weak. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians, the abused, the isolated. Jesus sees these people. He sees us, like I said, because isolation, abuse, loss, despair are not socioeconomic categories. Uh, these are universal experiences, part of living in this fallen world. And so we can take comfort in this fact that God sees us when we feel invisible. Like if you feel invisible right now <laughs> in your experience, like you are living an experience that nobody else in this community is living. And it's so hard. You feel so isolated and so alone. You can take Courage in the fact that God sees you. He understands what you're going through, the chaos of your mind and your heart. When you're consumed by loneliness, 
God is a God who sees you. Um, he, when you're so broken, you can't imagine healing on the other side of that brokenness. When your faith is flagging and your hope in the future is absent, when you're so filled with doubt that nothing good come out of your story, it's so beyond hope, God sees you. God, can you believe that God sees you? God is a God who sees. And not just sees. Here's the second part of this. He heals. So verse 14 again, look what Jesus says to the lepers. Go and show yourselves to the priests. Here Jesus is referring to a passage from Leviticus 14. Don't turn there, but it's a passage that, well, you could turn there. I don't know what else is there, but here's verses 2 to 3. It's these ceremonies that are for the removal of ritual defilement for a leper who's already physically clean. So what lepers would have to do is do all these sort of ceremonies to get themselves clean and then go to the temple and prove to the priests, sort of arbiters of religion, that they're worthy to be there. This is what religion's all about. And yet, notice Jesus says to them, while they're still lepers, nothing, and when you read the story, has yet happened. They're unclean. They're still losers. They're still cloaked in shame. Go to the priests. In other words, act as if you're clean and no longer outcasts. Go see them. These priests are like public health officials, if you can put it in those terms, for restaurants or public spaces. Their, their responsibility is to verify the cleanliness of the people and the objects and the spaces so that nothing would be defiled. That was really important value in the ancient Near East. And so go show these guys yourselves. But nothing's happened yet. And so that's kind of crazy. Uh, it doesn't make sense to me as a, as a reader to go, like, why not clean them up first, like heal them, and then send them, Jesus? What's that about? So they go, nonetheless, and as they go, it says they're cleansed. As they go, and we don't, so we don't know exactly how or why it happened that way. It just did. This is just Jesus' way of doing it. And whatever the reason, as they go, they're clean. And, and so the words here are really important. The word cleanliness in verse 14 is this Greek word, arizo. And it's a, it's a word from which we get our word catheter. So it's a medical word. And here it means to remove impurity. Okay? So if you've ever had a catheter, don't want to know. But that's essentially what the catheter is doing. is It's removing impurities from your body. The priest's responsibility is to remove impurities from the society. Remove the, the stain. Remove things from the society that were, were unholy, ungodly. And so... Uh, Verse 14 says, all of them are cleansed. All of them are catharizod. But then, notice this, verse 15, one of them, only one, saw that he was healed, which is different in Greek and English, and returned to Jesus. And that word for healing is not catharizo, it's aeomai. And it's a word that means to cure. So not to cleanse. In other words, it's like literally to make whole or to mend. So you can imagine here um, a broken bone inside of a cast finally healing and being set, you know? That's, that's what this is all about. And so here's the key. It's occurrences in the New Testament. This word's all of the New Testament have always to do with being delivered, to be saved, to, be, to bring wholeness into your life. If you think of your life as being broken, Jesus healing that, mending that. 1 Peter 2.24 says it this way, by his wounds we've been healed. I aomide, we're cured by, by Jesus' wounds. 
And so those words have a significant difference between them. One is sort of superficial. The other is very deep. One has to do with public spaces, image. The other is, is, how, you know, is, is actually about identity and integrity and heart. It's deeply internal and, and very personal. You know, I wonder if any of us have ever had that experience of Iomai, the depth of Jesus' work in our life that you can't really see, but you know is, is happening. See, because of the testimony of this story, what we know is that's what Jesus is really about. Not just cleaning us up so we can go to church, but going to the bone, to the heart, to the core of our identity. There's this uh, really amazing story. I'm glad, Thane, that you mentioned the, vo- the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, there's a story from the Voyage of the Don Treader about this little boy named Eustace. He's about 12, and everybody in the story hates him, if you've read this story. And he hates everybody, so it's, like, great. And he's selfish, he's mean, like, nobody can get along with this kid. And he finds himself on this boat, uh, the Don Treader, taking this voyage with a couple of his cousins. Um, and at one point, this boat pulls into an island, and uh, Eustace wanders off and finds this cave. And uh, this cave is filled with treasure, diamonds and gold and rubies. And he says to himself, I'm rich. <laughs> which is not just about the economic riches there, but he thinks to himself, because of the deep pain that he's felt, the shame that he's felt to his life at that point, I'm going to be able to pay everybody back now for all the hurt they've caused me. I'm going to, get, I'm going to be rich, and these people have laughed at me and stepped on me and spit on me. I'm going to laugh at them. I'm going to step on them and spit on them. I'm going to get them back. So he falls asleep on what he doesn't know yet to be a, a, the horde of a dragon. And... and, and because he has these greedy, dragonish thoughts. Remember, this is sort of a, a fantasy fairy tale story. He wakes up, and he's actually a dragon now. Big, horrible, ugly dragon. And as time goes on in the story, he realizes there's no way out of that cave. There's no way off the island. He can't go to the boat. He can't return. He, he's going to be there all alone the rest of his life forever. And, and in that, as Lewis tells the story, he practically loses all of his hope. Have you ever felt like you're going to be in this situation you're in the rest of your life, all alone forever? It's just never going to end. So one day, the great lion Aslan shows up and uh, leads him to this clear pool of water there. And paraphrase, he says, undress and jump in, Eustace. You've got to undress and jump in. And suddenly Eustace realizes, well, I can't. I'm, I'm a dragon. I don't, I'm not wearing clothes <laughs> in this story. So he's saying, I've got to take off this dragon skin. So he, he tries. He starts to gnaw and clod it. And, and if you can imagine a snake trying to shed his skin, that's what he tries to do. And he can't do it. He works at it. Feels off, finally peels off one layer. And to his surprise, as he gets the first layer off, he realizes he's still a dragon. Hmm. And he realizes he's got another skin underneath that skin. And so he does it again. He does this a third time. And he can't get to the heart of the matter. He's still a dragon. He's still a dragon. And then Aslan tells him, you're going to have to let me do it, Eustace. And here he uses his words, literally. He says, I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you I was pretty nearly desperate by now, though. And so I just lay flat on my back and let him do it. <laughs> and the very first tear he made was, went so deep, I thought it went to my heart. But then he began pulling the skin off. It hurt, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. But as he peeled that beastly stuff off, just as I thought I'd done myself the other three times, there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and knobbly looking than the others had been. And then he threw me into the pool, and that smarted like anything, only for a moment, though. 
And then I saw I'd become a boy. How did he do it? He let Aslan dig to his heart. He laid down flat on his back. Jesus is not satisfied with just cleaning us up, putting on our Sunday best, come to church, just being here. He wants to heal us, body, soul, spirit, to live as the people we were created to be, sons and daughters. And that doesn't happen by just taking layers away. That happens as God goes to the heart of your, of your, of your life, your deepest shame, and begins to rip away all the layers. We need to recognize the depth of God's healing. And, and that's the gospel. That's the good news. That's our calling, to recognize the depth of Christ's work in our lives, how deep he actually wants to go and needs to go. There's something deep, I aomai, that Jesus wants to do in your life. He wants to set the bones that have been broken. And that's our calling, is to recognize that deep work. Let Christ do that work. Pay attention to the depth of that work. Pause long enough to witness that healing. We don't have to do it. Uh, George McDonald has this great quote. He says, The miracles of Jesus were an ordinary thing for the Father, but small enough for us to see and action swiftly enough for us to take notice. Would we take notice that Jesus is up to something in our lives and then just come back to him and let him do it? Move toward Christ in response to his work, which is actually the final touch point real quick on this pathway from rejection to restoration. We're called to claim our place in Jesus' healing or in Jesus' kingdom. So, cry for help. See that he see that he heals. Let him heal, and finally, claim your place in his kingdom. So the Samaritan sees it. He alone of all these lepers recognizes the depth of it, and then he returns to Jesus as a result of that. How he knew Jesus did it, no idea. I think that's actually the reason the other nine just keep going. They weren't expecting anything from Jesus, really. Um, so he goes back to Jesus, and I love Jesus' response to him in verse 17. It's actually to the bystanders, so consider yourself a bystander. He's so ironic here. He could be a hipster. He's like, we're not all ten cleanse. Like, where are the other nine? You know? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this one foreigner? And that word Jesus used for foreigner, remember Hagar, her name means foreigner. That word's remarkable. It's unusual. It's specific. It's a word that's only used here in the New Testament. As an ins- and it was an inscription that was on the temple walls of that time. So if you were to go to the, the Jewish temple, you'd see this word on the walls. Um, very similar to the whites-only counters and signs of the 60s. To describe those non-Jews who are anathemas in the temple as a way of saying that someone had been born into the wrong family, born into the wrong race. And because of that, they're forbidden from entry. In fact, if they were to enter, it's punishable by death. So this man's a twofold outcast. He's a leper, but also Samaritan. The, the stigma of this hated cultural religious identity, despised by Jewish people in that day, which makes Jesus reply to him that much more amazing. I mean, leprosy you could cure. There's things that he could do to get right with God. If you could put it this way, Samaritanism is with him for life. And you could never, 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 as a Samaritan, enter into God's presence. So he's a, he's a duck twice dead. And, and in other words, not only is Jesus looking at this crowd saying, how come we can't find anybody else in this God, good God-fearing, good Bible-believing community like yours who can come back and thank, for, thank God for his work in your life? Is there nobody? I mean, really, people. Look what I'm doing here. 
Are you, are you that ungrateful? We're, we're called to gratitude, is what Jesus is kind of saying to us. Like, be children. Be grateful for simple things. But he's also saying, this guy, of all the people, hasn't been to Bible study, hasn't been to church, never attended Sunday school. He's been on the outside, outside, outside of it his entire life. He gets it. That should be a lesson to you. <laughs> he gets the gospel. He gets that what Paul says later in Ephesians 2 is that his, Christ's work is to abolish the wall of hostility, separating foreigners from so-called first-class citizens. That's what Paul says to us, that he gets that because of the work of Christ, we are one, that there are no longer, there's no longer separation in the temple based on class or race or gender, but only union, union. And that's what restoration from shame looks like, union in Christ, that Jesus' restoration from shame is ultimately about relationships being made whole. Jesus restores this man in every way. If you think about it, a person could be restored. He could meaningfully now contribute to the family of God as well as our society. He could get a job. He's probably not had a job his entire life. He could have a, a meaningful place of work. He could, have, he could give and receive love. He could receive human touch. Think about this for this man and for some people in our community, how they've never been able to give or receive human touch because of who they are and be touched and, and love others with the same love they receive, enjoy intimacy because of a stigma they carry on them. Jesus is saying, this guy's an image bearer because I created him in my image. (laughs) And you don't get to call him a foreigner. He is now a son of God. He's a member of our family. That's what Jesus does to those he reclaims from shame. He doesn't want separation. He wants family. So (laughs) a family where there's love, healing, opportunity to extend that healing to each other, um, to, to connect and contribute which is precisely what Jesus says to this man, rise and go, your faith has made you well. The word he uses there to finish here for that word made well is another Greek word, different than katharizo and iomai, it's sozo. And that means to be saved. The Greeks would use this uh, for people who escaped dangerous situations. So the word picture here is a a group of sailors surviving a, a storm at sea who were saved from peril. They would cry, sozo, that was their declaration when they got on the lifeboat. That was when they were headed for the rocks and were brought back to a port and rescued. Sozo. Matthew begins the gospel, and he starts with the Christmas story, and he says that the angel told Joseph to name the child Christ, Jesus, and his name would mean that he'll save people from their sins. He'll sozo people. Jesus is the ship, the lifeboat, rescuing the lost from isolation, from loneliness, from wreckage, placing us in communities, family, and bringing us back to safe harbor. And so here's the point. Being cleansed is never the point. Being healed isn't ultimately the point. Those are good things. The goal of Christ's life, Christ's presence, Christ's work in you and me is to make us well, to save us, to rescue us out of shame, to place us in a family to put us back into the right relationship with God, with each other, and to restore us back to that which we were created for. You're created for this. That's why I'm glad you're here today. And not, not slinking in the shadows, not covering and hiding, but saying, I choose this. I choose to be here. I choose to be with these people. Would you choose to now take the next step and say, hey, this is me. This is what I've been given. This is my story. This is who I am, and I need help and I want to be healed. 
So here's what I want to invite us. I'll invite our worship team up. I want to invite us to sort of apply this on two levels together. And I hope you'll hear this. These are two prayers I have for our community. Not things we're going to action on today, but genuinely prayers. Here's my first one. I pray and I hope that we would be the kind of community where people can do this kind of work, could cry out, could be seen and experiencing healing. You know, if you've been around the church very long, that religious communities are notorious for hiding and for darkness. Like ours are not the kind of communities where you often feel safe to just name your stuff, are they? Like we religious communities are great at (laughs) self-righteousness, We pretend to be better than we are. We feign a morality. Friends, would Bethany Northeast be different? Like, we, would we confront shame and darkness with vulnerability? Would we do that? Like, would we be courageous enough to confess our wounds to each other? And then in that confession, offer healing and moments of grace to each other and courageously minister and say, hey, join me in the lifeboat. We're all shipwrecked. We're all lost. Would you join me? Here's, here's the second thing. I hope and pray that we be a community that sees as Jesus sees. That we would see those because of their culture or race or sexual orientation, because of their past, their failures, their present struggles, whatever's going on, whatever it is. Would we see as Jesus sees those who are on the outside looking in, cut off, marginalized, they feel distant from God and community, would we just see them? Would we pause in our story and our lives and just see these people? You might be one of them. <laughs> you might know some people that would never dare darken, as we say, darken the door of a church. <laughs> would we not be that church? Would we be a place of light and hope and healing and invitation that says, you know what, this is a space, a sacred space, because there's healing here. And we're all experiencing it. And nobody is exempt from that. And nobody, nobody can be disqualified from either. A place where people can connect and contribute. Um, Maybe be that kind of a church where healing is offered and healing is experienced. That's my second prayer. So those are my two prayers for us in this season as we move ahead. And having said that, as as we respond with worship, let me just pray for us as we sit here together. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this uh, encounter, this story that we've spent time in this morning. Um, And I confess with my friends here, God, that putting inside of a kind of a left brain, like logical framework, it's not hard to talk about. It's easy to talk about shame and weakness and brokenness. But then when that moves into our heart, when we actually start considering people we know, places we are, that we have, we're called to walk this out, it gets really hard, God. We, we don't experience what Thane talked about, moral uplift. We just experience discouragement and despair. And God, I think of people in this room, many of us, God, are there, and we, we desperately long for you, Jesus, to meet us. 
And so I pray for anyone in the room, God, that is in that moment of desperation amongst the lepers, either thinking of their need and not sure how to cry for help, or right there, crying for help, God, would you stop and see us? Would you hear us, God, in our cries, in the cries of our hearts? Minister to us now, Lord. And there's other of us, God, in the room who are walking this out or doing this work. We've been listening to Brene Brown for years. Would you help us now see? We haven't taken that next step, Lord. Make us people, make us a community, God, who sees as you see. There are so many people right here and so many people in our surrounding community experiencing the brokenness of shame. And God, if I've heard anything clear this week, it's that shame has no place in your world. Let's help us be a source of light and healing and hope, God. We ask you to use us, God. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God who sees. And so we respond by worshiping you now. In Christ's name, amen.